Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Stephanie McCarty. She's the Chief Marketing and Communications Officers at Taylor Morrison. Taylor Morrison is one of the U.S.'s largest residential home builders, and Stephanie has led efforts resulting in the brand being recognized as America's most trusted home builder by Life Story Research seven years running and positioned Taylor Morrison among the first to move the future of new construction home shopping forward with innovative customer acquisition tools and a very engaging website. On the show today, we talk about her background in journalism, how that led to a career in communications and more recently into marketing. We talk about Taylor Morrison and the journey that the company has been on in terms of the evolution of their marketing, their marketplace, and their website digital marketing efforts to improve the shopping experience. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephanie McCarty. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. One of the things we like to do is to get right into it and get to know something about the individual. And as I think about it, there's We've had many different stories and there are many different moments in our lives that are sometimes funny, occasionally really odd and unusual, and sometimes very sad. And I know when we were talking last, the human condition and life in general is a journey. And I, I think you've lost people close to you in an early age. And I was wondering if you would just share a little bit about that story and, and what that means to you and like, how does that you know, motivate you today? Yeah, it's, I love that you brought it up in terms of the human condition and just the human life, because it is rich with wonderful moments and sad moments. But I think that really brings out the emotion of all sides and makes life what it is. I had a string of tragedies occur with lots of loss early on in life that I think it wasn't the story I would have written for myself, but nonetheless, it is my story. And I think the older we get, I've learned to embrace and find the beauty in that story. But I was 21 when I lost my father. And just a few short years later, I lost my mother and my only sister. So by the age of 28, I found myself an orphan and trying to navigate this world without that immediate family. 
And even if I take a step back, Alan, prior to losing my father, I was a professional diver. I dove in college. Um, I coached diving and I was in a tragic accident at 20, just I think a short 14 months before my dad passed, that took diving away from me. I would never dive again after that moment. So I think that resilience has become such a large theme in my life. And I think with any kind of trauma or tragedy, the way your body reacts to it, the way you as an individual react to it, I think I went through those stages of grief. I was um, very angry. I probably didn't make the best decisions there for a few years, but come to came to a, an awakening moment, if you will, and decided, you know, I don't have my family and loved ones here. And I can use that as an excuse to live whatever kind of life I deem appropriate, or I can use that as my reason to live the best life that I can and to honor them and to be the most and be the Stephanie that I think they saw that you can't really see when you're young. I think, you know, at 21, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know much of anything at that age, to be honest. So I think when I look back at my story and I've come to accept more of all the pieces that make and shape me, I wonder if my work ethic, my drive, my ambition to be something would have been as strong or powerful or the force that it was that brought me to where I am today. I really do think that it has a large part of that for sure. Yeah, it it must, right? I mean, I think every, what I've learned talking to so many people over the years, like yourself, is that everything shapes us. Everything. I can attest to that after at least, you know, 15 years of grief therapy and the family of origin and why we are the way we are, it shapes us. We are shaped this way, but we don't have to be this way, which is the nice realization in that. Yes, yes, yeah. No, I, I like how you say that too. Shape us, but we don't have to be. I like that. It's the learning and unlearning, right? That we're constantly doing as adults. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's instilled resilience and grit and work ethic to your point. And thank you for sharing. It's a good context for the rest of this conversation. For sure. Your professional journey along the way. Like what has been your path to becoming Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Taylor Morrison? So I would tell you probably not a traditional path to a CMO role. Um, I went to Arizona State University. I majored in journalism. I knew at a young age that I had a craft for telling stories, asking questions, finding stories. I even remember my mom at a very young age because I asked so many questions. She was like, you're either going to be a journalist or a lawyer. And I toyed around with potentially going to law school, but figured I was uh, four years was enough. I wanted to get into the real world. But I loved journalism and I liked finding the angles of stories and really telling the stories that move people. So out of college, I, I started at a publishing house and I was um, part of a very small kind of internal in-house PR agency, managed several clients, found out at a really early age that having to pretend to know everything about several clients was not something that I I aspired to do. So I went brand side really quickly. I jumped into the semiconductor space, not knowing anything about a semiconductor, but convincing the leadership there that I I could tell a good story. And they were on a growth story and wanted to continue to grow their business in a meaningful way. And I jumped in, I I immersed myself in manufacturing and and semiconductor language. And in my first 12 months there. I mean, we acquired three or four different semiconductors. It was when kind of the recession was starting in 2007, 2008. We were going through divestitures and furloughs. So I think in a year, I got hit with so much change within corporate America. And I was the voice behind the executives and really counseling them on how do you bring employees? We had 13,000 globally along. How do you keep them in the know? How do you keep them feeling safe and secure and informed and engaged and not afraid? And I became very quickly this trusted counsel without really knowing. I, I, I always go back to, I wish I could be that young and naive again, because you just don't know what you don't know. And I immersed myself into that business and became seen as a true strategic partner, as a communications professional. I took that with me into my next venture. I went into information technology to another Fortune 500 business, and I built the internal communications and corporate communications 
discipline there. And again, in my, I think I was only there about a year and a half. We went through three leadership changes from a CEO perspective, lots of change in terms of growth and created the infrastructure on how and the voice of our leadership team as, as it changed over so much. And we had 5,000 employees here in North America and brought with me the same learnings and opportunities from the semiconductor space. And from there, I got another tap on the shoulder to join and lead a much larger communications department at University of Phoenix. So I threw myself into higher education, which at the time, well, it's always very regulated, but at the time there was a lot of new regulation coming into how you could recruit and advertise and provide financial assistance for higher education, for secondary education. And at the time when I joined University of Phoenix, Alan, there was 22,000 employees going through massive change. And again, it was how do you get that many people to row in the right direction and understand the strategy of the organization? And I just kept finding myself year after year taking on more and more responsibility and taking that craft and applying it to different stakeholders, right? So I I say I grew up in the internal communications and executive communications ghostwriting for leaders. And then it was almost like before I even knew it, I was helping to write earnings call transcripts for investors and analysts and preparing leaders for media interactions. And I started taking on other stakeholder communications and leading these corporate communication functions and found that there's, as long as you know your audience and you know the objective of the message, it's not who you're speaking to is not quite as important as as long as you've got your story straight and you've got a compelling story and you know that someone's going to want to hear it. I met our CEO at Taylor Morrison at a a function and was essentially started an interview process that I didn't know I was signing myself up for, which was wonderful because she's just the most amazing, brilliant woman I've ever had the pleasure of working for. I was six months pregnant at the time with my first child and she was like, I have this I have this vision for my organization and I need someone to help me tell that story. And so I joined her in 2015 at Taylor Morrison as the vice president of corporate communications and started to do what I had always done. I built an an infrastructure and channels and ways of getting communications and messaging out. I helped build the voice of our leadership team and and decide what kind of communication should come from where and where should they land. I talked to our employees. What does it feel like to work at Taylor Morrison? Why are you here? Where'd you come from? What's important to you? I mean, really getting the sense of what the organization was at the time, which was about a thousand people, the smallest organization I had been at at the time. And within, I've been here a little over seven years now, and in my seven years, we've gone through six acquisitions. I think the first three were in the first nine months and the following three were much, much larger. So each acquisition got much, much bigger than the last. And from an employee size, we're now around 3,000 employees. But from a pure operations standpoint, we went from being about a billion in revenue to just under 10 billion. So the growth of our operations has been astronomical. And so in my first three and a half years, before that true growth kind of set in, I was focused on building a brand inside and building a culture that all of our employees, regardless of what location you sat at, you could be proud of and you felt like you were part of something bigger. I say in home building, it's very entrepreneurial and each division kind of operates and runs within their own world. And we created channels and ways of being connected to your peers and other markets that had the same struggles and and challenges and that you just didn't know because they didn't sit within the four walls of your market. And that culture building, again, I I always tell my CEO, it's like she has puppets and she's the master puppeteer and just no one can see the strings. But that groundwork was so timely because of where we are today, had we not done that work. And I say we're this mutt home builder because we've gone through so many acquisitions. We have talent who's come from different competitor sets now living within our four walls. And I hear constantly time and time again about the culture at Taylor Morris and you hear about it from the outside. And then you get here and you don't expect it to be true. And you're so surprised when you're like, They really live up to this culture that we're so proud of talking about and our leaders talk about so freely. And about three and a half years into the journey here, Alan, I was talking with my CEO and I said, I'm helping you with earning script and how we message to investors and analysts and shareholders. And I'm I'm talking to the media, I'm talking to our employees. There's a, a huge opportunity of people that I don't get to talk to. And she was like, who? And I was like, 
our consumers, the people who are purchasing our homes and becoming a part of our extended Taylor Morrison family. And I know that I I can make a difference there. So I didn't wake up and aspire to be the head of marketing at Taylor Morrison, but I saw an opportunity and we talked about it for a few months. And I think at that point I had just had my second child and had returned from maternity leave. And we were throwing this idea back and forth to each other. And a few months later, it had happened. And I was taking over the marketing function here at corporate, which at the time was only two individuals. Um, Most of our, we were very decentralized. Our marketing resides and the responsibilities and the strategic kind of direction fell within each division. So I came to the table with a very different view and and set of ideas on what we could be doing as a Fortune 500 builder in ways that we could be more effective. So like I said, not a traditional path. And that became very clear to me. I, I attended a CMO conference a few years ago. I think I had been in the seat maybe eight months and went into it thinking if it was this game of someone, one thing doesn't look like the others. It felt like it was me. And I was this this standout of, I haven't led performance or brand marketing at any other large organization, like all of these fabulous individuals. But as I listened to so many of the speakers talk, they were being charged with culture and employee experience and internal branding and employee communications, and they didn't know where to start. And now, again, three and a half years into my role today, I see that as a true competitive advantage on focusing on building a brand from the inside and not the opposite it because it's much harder to tell someone what the brand is and make them believe it. I think our employees are your your largest advocates, your ambassadors. They're doing the they're fighting the good fight for you daily. And if they don't drink that Kool-Aid and believe it, it's a much harder time to push it out. So I think my non-traditional path is is truly um at first I didn't embrace it and now I'm all for it because I think that I have some some fellow CMOs who will come to me for advice on that. Cause I think it's a little bit, it's more of a niche industry on the communication side. Yeah, no, I agree. But that said, like the CMOs that I have talked to, I mean, yes, some of them have more of your standard come up through marketing ranks or brand management and and the like at various places. But I think additionally, as I talk to people, everyone's got a little bit of a different background. I like to call CMOs snowflakes because they are all a little unique and the jobs are even more so unique, the roles in which they're in many times. But I do love folks like yourself that come from like a journalistic or like comms background. The other analogous people that I'd put in the same bucket, which may sound odd both to you and to listeners, but I would put sales people as well in the same bucket. And the reason is like you guys are the truth tellers. Like <laughs> you're trying to find weed through all of the jargon And tell me what is important to know. Well, they're living it, right? They know what works and what doesn't work. They've tried it. I agree. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I I think it's a great background. And man, what a journey, you know, like you've, you've done a bunch of, and I would only imagine, I don't, I don't, you don't need to tell me ages as you were starting your career, but some of these, I mean, experience you've had at at what I'm assuming was a relatively young age were phenomenal, you know, like the acquisitions, the, the leadership changes, the crisis communications, all of that wrapped up must've been just like, an amazing like forging of your skill set. <laughs> you know what's funny? It makes me think, and I'm fine talking about ages. I don't think that there's any secret there. I, I was in my young mid-20s when a lot of this change was occurring and I was kind of jumping ship to larger organizations going through more change. They used to write books back then that I was trying to buy on just change communications. And it feels like for communications professionals, marketing professionals, that that's it's almost comical to think about that now because... The world is constantly changing and the speed of which it changes is light years compared to what it was. I mean, you couldn't even get a book titled Change Communications written and published in the time that it would be relevant for someone to need that to find that book. But it was so much condensed in a short amount of time that by the time I got to Taylor Morrison, I felt like my years were a lot longer than they would. And I hear that a lot that I have, there's so much wisdom at such a young age. I started at Taylor Morrison when I was 30. I'm 37 now. And I feel like in the seven years and even just the change that I've gone through here with this organization, forget all the change prior to being here. It's just, it's a constant. And I think that's kind of cliche. We talk about that's the one thing you can always expect is change. What I find so fascinating about change, and I'm sure this applies at several industries, but when I think about home building and you think about the way in which we build homes, 
the way in which we sell homes. Those two things, Alan, have not changed very much in the last 30, 50, call it 100 years. I think we've added hard hats to job sites. I think we've upped our OSHA standards and our safety protocols. But the way we advertise and market and bring people into our communities and build, it's just, it's an archaic industry to be in. Probably the slowest moving in terms of change. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tell me a little bit more about Taylor Morrison, just so everyone can conceptualize. Like, I know you're a home builder. You mentioned the journey you guys have been on from like 1 billion to 10 billion in revenue through a lot of acquisitions and just growth in general. Can help us conceptualize it. How do you talk about who you guys are? Yes. And we're not a law firm. I get that a lot. We're the fifth largest national home builder and community developer. We build from coast to coast. We're in 21 markets and we build master plan communities and we serve all different consumer segments, really from our first time entry level buyer, first time, second time move up. And we have a very large resort lifestyle community offering. We serve luxury buyers and we have a 55 plus offering as well. So we really, we say we're not a niche builder, but we there's almost a Taylor Morrison home for any stage of life. But something that's unique about new home construction that's very different than other products is I don't build a product that sits on a shelf that you're going to buy repeatedly. You probably go through the new home construction or the home buying purchase roughly every, we say on average, every seven years. That's That time frame is condensing now as we have millennials entering the market and life transitions and household formations are growing. And when you enter a kid into the mix, you know, it signals a move. So people do buy multiple homes in their life, but it's not a constant purchase decision. And our biggest competitor is resale, right? So a lot of people don't even know that you can go through the process of a new build. So I think that makes my position being the first chief marketing officer at Taylor Morrison, um, very unique. And we have a very unique opportunity to meet a consumer in a very different way than I think our industry has ever even attempted to do so. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Like what you, it is an industry that hasn't changed much in many years. What does marketing communications look like at Taylor Morrison? And we can talk more about like how you're going to change it, but kind of tell us a little bit about what it looks like now. Yeah. So the first few things that I was very focused on when I um, assumed the role and I merged our communications department, which was two people, and our marketing department, which was two people. I said, we are one company, but we do things 17 different ways. At the time, we had 17 divisions. I think now we have 20. And we took a hard look at what is our brand? How do we want to present our brand? We're, we're really big. We need to have more consistency, more control over this process. We went from outsourcing all of our creative production, all of our, our media production and spend to creating our own internal kind of creative studio and digital media department and now digital product. So we went from outsourcing to insourcing so that we can have full control. So my team is now 30. I have 30 bright, brilliant, creative and communication masterminds. And we have created a brand that I think in our industry is, is means something different, right? We now compete, I think, outside of our industry from a branding perspective. We also looked at the process of engaging with a home builder. And what does that shopping experience look like? The difference to 
between a resale home and a new build is the build process, right? It's not a home that's constructed that you could go walk through that you could find on Zillow and you could close in 30 days. We're selling a dream. We may or may not have a model of the floor plan that you want to see. And then it's going to take in today's market longer than normal, but in a, in a normal market, anywhere from six to 10 months to build that home. It's much longer today given supply constraints and labor constraints, but that's a long journey to engage with a brand while you're waiting for your product. But how people find out about a new home construction opportunity or a community that's under development and then go through the process of designing and personalizing your home, which is I think what everybody wants and dreams of when they think about their future home, you don't want to just plug and play into someone else's dream of a home. So there's lots of opportunity to put to, to play into that emotional. This is the biggest purchase you're ever going to make in your life. We want it to feel like it's also the best experience of your life. So just from a shopping perspective, when I first got here, our website, Alan, was I refer to it as just a pure seduction tool. It was, we're going to show you really pretty pictures of a house and that's all. We're not going to tell you what it's going to cost. We're not going to tell you anything about it. We're going to make you fit into our mold. We're going to make you come into the community into the community and sit down with the salesperson and then make the decision of, can you afford it, right? You get to have the awkward conversation when someone tells you how much it is and it's outside of your budget without being able to do any of that research on your own. That was seven years ago. We think of the Amazons of the world and how people shop today. Forget COVID, right? COVID catapulted plenty of industries, ours included. But I knew four or five years ago that that's just not sustainable, right? Consumers want to move quickly. They want information. They want to make their own decisions. And today, I mean, people, I do it. My husband does it. My phone will ring and I'll look at it and I'm waiting for my phone to stop ringing so that I can text them because I don't, I don't have time to talk to people. And so we were forcing people through this mold of between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Come see the home and we're going to sell it. We're going to hard sell you. And we have transformed our website to being transparent, fully transparent in terms of timing, of options, pricing. We've created products that allow you to personalize the inside of a home, which is the most fun part of buying a brand new home, of really putting in, you know, the countertops of your dreams and your flooring and changing that den into a fifth bedroom or what have you and allow someone to get emotionally invested into this product before they come in. Now they've made the decision. They know that they can afford it. Now the selling part gets easy for our sales, our, our sales teams. But I say my the hardest part of my job is just the, it's the influencing. It's trying to shake an industry that has been so hardwired into this field of dreams mentality that if you put the right product on the right piece of land, they will come, right? That brand doesn't matter. That PR doesn't matter. That what you do as an organization, whether you're a good steward of the community or not, doesn't matter. And that's really been, I think, the largest opportunity for us is just to change the way people think about what consumers want and really giving optionality. Because I do believe there will always be a consumer who wants to touch and feel and smell the home and sit down and create a relationship with the salesperson. But I know I live with them. I am one. I know that there are people who want to shop differently in that experience and they want to do all of their research online. They want to configure it on their own. They want to know what they can afford and not afford. And then they'll call someone to help them finalize that transaction. So that has been a huge focus for us the last few years. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing to hear you talk about it. I mean, just the transformation of brochure where my term, not yours, to like a full digital experience that mirrors kind of the choices and pathway to building your dream, your dream home in your case. And uh, it's fascinating. And I can only imagine some of the resistance that you might encounter along the way to go from how you normally would do this is like land, build it in person experience to digital. But to your point, like you've mapped out if you will, almost like the customer journey and their decisions. And they're going to places for that inspiration, whether you want them to or not. So why not supply it to them? Absolutely. So I'm just curious, like, how do you stay close to that customer journey and, and keep you know, adjusting your approach, your experience that you're building from an e-commerce standpoint or digital experience? Personally, I look for inspiration outside of the industry, right? How am I shopping as a consumer with other brands for other goods and services? How are my 
leaders and my sales teams doing that. And I bring some of those things that are very obvious, but that I just think we do it so often. You can go on Amazon and buy something and it arrives tomorrow and you forget that you did it. And so it's just so natural in this day and age. And so I think it's understanding how how big retailers operate and then talking to our, you know, and I'm going to answer this in two ways for you, talking to our operators about you're a consumer too. How do you engage with your brand, with the brands that you purchase from? And what do you enjoy about that process? What do you not enjoy about that process? Having a female CEO, I can speak her language too. And so I planted the seed and I said, you know, those boots that you saw online when you were shopping at Nordstrom and you were so busy, you forgot to check out, but you put them in your shopping cart. Did they reach out to you? Did they say anything to you? Of course. She says, oh yeah, I got an email. They told me I'd look amazing in those boots. And I said, you know what? You're right. You would look amazing in those boots, but you want to know what that brand, you gave that brand, you gave that brand another opportunity to reach out and engage with you and to validate your shopping and to validate your decisions. And home builders don't get to operate on that same playing field. But what if we could? What if we could create a product that would allow a consumer to choose the piece of land that they want to build their home on, to choose the floor plan that means all of their family's needs, it has enough bedrooms, has enough bathrooms, enough stories, a big enough garage. They get to pick that, put that on that piece of dirt. They get to choose their exterior. Do they like craftsmen? Are they more modern? What color scheme really like gets them excited? And then let them personalize it on the inside and give them a way to visually see that, right? Those selections. And what if they could take that combination and put it in a shopping cart? And if they abandon it, which it's a huge decision to make, right? And then we can re-engage with them. And I can now say, hey, you know what? That home of your dreams, it's waiting for you. Don't let someone else snag it up. So we're now able to operate more like a big box retailer, which that scenario like lit up the eyes of our leadership team. They were like, oh my gosh, I've been in this industry for 50 years. You're telling me I can, we could put our product in shopping carts. There's not a shopping cart big enough. So that's how, at least on the inside, how we, how we talked about getting inside the minds of our organization just by asking them, how do you shop? And then on our customer side, it's, I mean, we have to ask them, right? So we, we survey, we send surveys when they participate in specific activities with when they engage with us. We have shopper surveys that go out through our market intelligence team that we, we collect that data. We, we spend a lot of time with that data on how did they hear about us? What did they enjoy? Did they visit our website? What did they do on the website before they came in? So really understanding the process of that decision-making, that the psychographics and the insights. And then we never stop asking, right? So we do a lot of focus groups. And then on the digital front, so when we're really looking at what we do on the website, we do a lot of user testing and a lot of user experience. And we we will create a design and an experience and we test it and then we iterate and then we test again. And I think every digital product, I mean, certainly not a set it and forget it world that we live in, but we are touching our products and enhancing and optimizing all the time. And the only way you know if it's working is by asking if it's working and getting more insight. And you brought up sales, right? Our sales engine is such a key component into, hey, what are the pain points that you can't overcome? And is there a way that we can overcome them for you? And then talking to our consumers. What is the most painful part about this experience and how do we try to overcome that? And I think about what as a marketing leader of all the things, you know, we ask about satisfaction. I think what we should be asking our consumers is how hard, how much effort did you have to go through to make this purchase decision? And those that score really low, the ones that we make their lives easier, that's where we aspire to be. We want to be a brand that builds a very complex product that takes a very long time, but we want that customer effort to be extremely low. I 100% agree. And man, I will buy anything you sell. Like you, you have mastered the art of like unfolding a story. I mean, that boots story in particular, I'm ready to sign up for boots. I'm ready to sign up for a house. Like, tell me what you're selling next. I'm going to buy I mean, I'm a serial. I put so many things in my shopping cart and don't check out. It's almost like this really disgust and twisted hobby of mine now because I'm just so interested in how quickly, what happens, right? But yeah, it's just, it's my favorite analogy and my favorite story because again, I think as, as consumers, whether it's boots or my husband put something in his shopping cart at Amazon and he got a note, he's like, you're right, I did get a note. It applies to everyone. And I think as consumers, we can't isolate. Like, why is it easy to shop for this product, but not easy to shop for this product, right? People can buy cars out of vending machines today. 
It doesn't have to be hard. It can be easy. We just have to help make it easy. And there's an investment there. And there's a lot of questions and time that, you know, you have to have the resources and the commitment to. And I know that that's hard for lots of organizations because if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. And so I, I feel very fortunate to have a CEO and a leadership team that knows that this is the future, whether they fully support it and believe it or want it to be true. There's enough realization of what the world is and where our consumers are going and how they're evolving to know it to be true, right? And I don't want a consumer to have to wake up and know, well, I need a new house, but I know this is going to be a horrible process, right? Better get ready. Well, you're definitely going to stand out from the crowd just based on the experience you've built so far. But yeah, I I mean, I agree. And I think a lot of people use it as an excuse. I don't have the this, I don't have that to make this come to life. I mean, if you don't start, you'll never have it, right? And I like the fact that despite what the industry was doing, you guys started and you've iterated and you've improved it and you continue to improve it. And I think that's the journey most people need to get on at some level. So I think if you're passionate and you've got an idea and you know it to be true, I'm a very intuitive person. And so that's just kind of what fuels me. And I feel fortunate. I know not all CMOs have an organization that supports all of their crazy ideas, but I knew this wasn't crazy. And I have a team here who most of my marketing team does not come from home building. So they see the world very different. And they've come from whether it's agency side or other brands, and they're bringing some of those best practices to the table. And it's it's made us a much sharper, more sophisticated marketing department. And I really do think we've been positioned to elevate the business different. And they talk about it, right? We were at my, my part of my team and I, we were just at a builder digital marketing summit conference and we're kind of, you know, idolized in that space where we're, we're pushing the envelope. And so my theory on that is there's a price to pay to be first, right? I want to be first. I'm competitive in nature, but I really do think it's a, an all boats rise philosophy here that our biggest, the biggest risk is consumer adoption. So when we're all providing a solution that allows their purchase to be easier, the entire industry will win. So I do hope that everyone gets on board and focuses on it because I do think the person who benefits the most in that is the consumer and the home buyer. We could talk about marketing and what you've done all day long, but I want to get to a couple, one other topic before we switch gears and it comes back to like your prior experience, both at Taylor Morrison, but also even beforehand and working with employees and the employee experience. And I think you've been building or focused on an employer brand and culture, if you will, from the inside. A lot of CMOs are being tasked with that right now. And curious what advice you'd give those CMOs on how to add that to their focus area or where to, what to think about if they're interested in adding it to their focus area. I think it makes so much sense for CMOs to be leading this part of the organization too. I mean, we're we're storytellers, we're creating experiences. It's the same thing for where you work, right? So when you ask a consumer why they make a purchase decision or they don't, and so much of it's around how how a brand made them feel, and it's the same, you know, you get up and you go to work and you spend so much of your life away from your family and putting your blood, sweat, and tears into your work and for an organization. And what does it feel like to work there? Do you feel valued? Do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you have a voice? Talking to your employees about what would make their experience at work better is is an easy place to start. In all of the organizations I've worked at, we've created what we call an EVP, an employee value proposition, just like your USP, your unique selling proposition, right? Like how do you find as an organization what you do that sets you up from the rest? This is just pure kind of talent acquisition and how are you recruiting people and then how are you retaining them? And a good place to start is going and asking your HR department if you can look at exit surveys. Right? Where are you failing these employees? Why are people voluntarily leaving? Seeing where those themes are, that's just collecting intel. And then looking at your brand from the inside and saying, what do we offer? What do we offer em- employees that's different from our, our competitors? What does it feel to work here? Do we offer flexibility? What's important to our, our demographic, right? Because we have employees of all ages. And so everyone needs something a little bit differently. And certainly that came out through COVID on flexibility, but understanding that value proposition and then almost like on the nose, putting a name to it. So here at uh, Taylor Morrison, we call or we say this is TM Living. So TM Living is a very active way of encompassing our culture, which is focused on spirit and pride, community and giving, 
being strategic. We have love and inspire. So we have these four tenants and about 14 manifestos that we talk about daily. So one way that we infuse our culture into our organization is we have a huddle every day for 15 minutes where the entire company within their own departments. So it's an intimate setting, but they're talking about the same thing every day across the company. And half of what we call our huddle sheets that we give out to our huddle leaders or our people leader is talking about culture, who we are, how we show up in the world, and everyone gets to talk about it. And we plant a seed in everyone where we ask a question for the group to get them engaged. And then this is where we share important updates about benefits or things that are coming, whether it's an earnings call. This is where we share wow moments, wow stories from our customers, interactions where we've surprised and delighted our, our home buyers. And we share that across the company to inspire other wow moments or wow worthy moments. And this huddle, we started this in 2019. And thank God we did because when COVID hit and everyone was sent home, the biggest question that our leaders were like, well, how do we retain this culture? How do we keep people engaged and committed and connected? And that huddle, that daily huddle, 15 minutes a day is how everyone felt connected to the organization. We were talking about the same thing. We were bringing important, and relevant and timely stories that are happening within the organization front and center. So that's hard to orchestrate, lots of logistics. But once you get it down and you get the organization kind of, I think a lot of people were like, oh, this is never going to stick. This is one of those like flavor of the month things. And here we are three years later and we still do it every day. <laughs> people, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a differentiator as, a, as an organization. And it's a huge communication vehicle for us. No, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, putting action to strategy, right? Like if, if you want to have a specific type of culture, you have to enforce it and give it a way to live. And this is a great tactical demonstration of that. And it's amazing that something, and I know it's not simple to prepare and put those like uh, huddle sheets together, but like just the simple act of a 15 minute stand up or huddle to get people aligned. So easy to do, but hard to do with discipline. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Discipline's everything in life, right? With all things, but we've created the discipline and the muscle, but the most, the be most beautiful things that come out of those daily huddles with your team is not necessarily the prepared remarks. It's the communication and the sharing that happens within that team while they're together. Because we say at the end of every huddle, let's share some local news, whether it's birthdays or anniversaries, or in our case, if it's within a community, who's moving in today? Whose house is closing? And they're all together. There's, if you're all together, whether it be on the phone or in person, let's talk about what else is going on. So you're also giving that team another two or three minutes, to just talk about what's important that day that needs to get done or celebrated. So we try to get leaders to think about, don't just read the copy on the content or on the sheet, right? Let's, let's make this personal. You've got all, your entire team standing right there in front of you. What do they need to know? Well, I want to switch gears. We've already learned quite a bit about you, your journey, things that happened to you um, when your early career. It's important to us to kind of understand you even a little deeper than we already do. And so I'm curious if there's an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today. And we may have already talked about it, but maybe this is an opportunity to underline it if we have. Yeah. I mean, I really do think some of the loss kind of catapulted me into, I think, how I approach work. Clearly, when you're in turmoil and distress, there's a lot of probably not so positive things that you can turn to. I think work was one of the more healthier options at the time for me. So I, I did early on get the kind of nickname as being more of a workaholic. I wouldn't advise that on anyone. In my situation, it did work. I spent a lot of time kind of perfecting my craft early on. So that's part of my story. I think that's part of a defining moment. I'm a mother now. I have three beautiful children. And I knew once I lost my parents and my sister that if I wanted a family, I was going to have to go and create it. So I was very intentional in my uh, procreation, if you will. And I love being a mom. So I try to be the best example. Um, I have two daughters. And so I have kind of my family household is not is is non-traditional. I'm the breadwinner. My husband stays home. But showing my daughters that they can be who they want to be and live how they want to live and have aspirations. And they're not too much or too little for anyone. They're exactly as they should be. And so I think being a mom really defines how I show up every day. 
I also just think like throwing myself into every experience and opportunity. I, I'll take you back to that semiconductor, uh, my first what I call big girl job out of college. I'm reminded of this a lot. And I tell my team too, my CEO at the time, and this was before iPhones, when you couldn't just take a quick and dirty video of your CEO and send it out to your employees the same day, we had to go to a studio and had a teleprompter and my, do the whole kind of kit and caboodle dog and pony show, which is hard to believe. That was only 2008. That really wasn't that long ago. Our CEO was speaking, taking a take in front of the teleprompter. And I noticed that he had a smudge on his glasses and there was seven other leaders standing around just staring at him. And I'm looking at him and I'm looking at them and I'm looking at him again. And I'm like, I have no idea what we're spending on this studio and how much it costs to rent it out for however long we're here. But is anybody going to tell this poor guy that his he has something on his glasses. And so I probably stood there for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I, in my mind, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. So I stepped into frame. I took his glasses off his face. I cleaned them with my t-shirt and I handed them back to him. And everyone was looking at me like, oh my gosh, this girl's crazy. It's been nice knowing her. She's not going to be working here for much longer. And I don't know if it was that moment or a collection of moments, but that CEO started to come to me for all of his communication needs and for gut checks. And I think I built trust and a rapport with him for just looking at him saying, I do not want you to spend all this money and this time and put this video out and you to look not polished, right? My job is to make you look the best that you can. And so I told that story to a, a teammate on our team and they were like, would you do it? Would you do that again? Now that you're older and you know, you're wiser, you're more aware of the world or what people were probably thinking when they were looking at you doing this. And my answer is yes, because that's my job. And we call that radical candor, right? No one wants to make you feel bad in the moment by telling you that you've got broccoli in your teeth. But if you're about to go make a fool out of yourself for the rest of the day, because you've got something in your teeth, like that's not love. <laughs> That's not candor. That's not, that's being nice in the moment, but that's not being kind. So I do think there's a difference between nice and being kind. And so I view myself as I was being kind to my CEO. And now we won't have to rebook that studio and waste more of his time to have to re reshoot that. So I think whatever was in me in that moment has always been in me and is kind of the approach that I take to my life every day, whether that be work or family or what have you. I'm curious if the advice you'd give to your younger self is radical candor. It would be, and it would be to myself. I think I have a, it's a lot easier for me to give it than to or give it to others than to myself. I think the piece of advice I'd also give my younger self is don't set the bar so low. I was only looking one step ahead. And at 20, 21, 25, 30, if you would have asked me, do you want to be a CMO? Will you ever be a CMO? I don't know that I would have said yes or even thought that it was possible. So I do think that I set the bar too low for myself unknowingly. And so I would tell my younger self and any of the you know younger um, folks kind of up and coming, whether it's in marketing or whatever discipline of choice is to is raise that bar and keep it and continue to raise it because there is no ceiling. And I, I felt for a long time, I put a ceiling on myself without even without even knowing what was possible for me. Got it. Is there a topic either you're trying to learn more about or you think marketers should be learning more about right now? There's probably so much. And I think I not being what I would call a, a quote unquote true marketer and I didn't grow up in the profession of like performance marketing and understanding all of the the jargon that we have in the advertising sphere. I think every brand, every marketer should be focused on customer effort and making their business simpler and making the way that consumers can engage with us simple. I think being respectful of time and what it takes um, to make a purchase decision and understanding the customer is where every marketer should be focusing, I would say 90% of their time. And if they do, they'll never get it wrong. Awesome. Are there brands, companies, or causes that you're following you think other people should be taking notice of? Uh, I have a laundry list. But before it became cliche to be a Peloton avid Peloton user. That was me. I bought my Peloton in 2016 before COVID and before everyone had one. So I'm not going to talk about how much I love Peloton, even though I do, but I'm an avid traveler. I love to travel. I'm a huge Southwest fan. Um, I think that they're from a branding perspective, nailed it. They also fall very low on the customer effort scale. I love their app. I'm also a huge coffee drinker, but I'm going to be very honest between you and I and all of our listeners. I go to Starbucks. I don't think they have the best coffee, but man, have they nailed the customer experience and they make it very, very easy. I'm a Dutch bros girl, but I feel like I'm 
I'm not the right demographic. I don't like being asked 30 questions while I wait for my coffee about what I'm going to do that day and where I'm going and where I get my hair done. It's too much, too invasive for me, but their coffee is definitely the best tasting. And then I actually just recently got into Athletic Greens and I think they're kind of like my new obsession as I get older and I want to make sure that I can live as long as I can for my family and my children. It's a daily vitamin for your gut health and instead of taking a bunch of pills, it's one drink a day and I feel better. And I I think direct-to-consumer brands are having a moment and they're making consumers' lives easier. And they're definitely one that I'm very, very interested in and following very closely right now. Interesting. I'll have to check them out. I've heard the, I've heard the advertisements on podcasts I listen to, but uh, I haven't tried the product yet. I need to try it. Yes. That's how I heard about it too. That's how powerful podcasts are. I know. They do a great <laughs> job too. They're they literally do. everywhere. Last question really for you. What's the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? You know, I'm going to go back to just the speed of change. The first question I asked my CEO, when she said, do you want this job was, am I going to be working myself out of a job in 18 months, right? In my experience at all the other brands I was at prior to Taylor Morrison, CMOs don't stick around for a long time. And for whatever reason that may be, whether it's personal or it's the company, or maybe it's even mutual, change is just so rapid and it's really hard to expect one person to be able to stay on top of it. But I think the closest, the closer we can all stay to what other brands are doing and we continue to bring ideas to the table, I think that just adds longevity to all of our careers and positions. But I I read dailies every day that are specific to marketing and to advertising and try to stay as close to what the industry is doing as I can. So I can be, I can bring that to our organization and our brand and our team. So we can think about how we do work. I think the minute you grow stale, it's game over. But it's very time consuming, right? Just because there's so many different channels to get that information and and it's going to be different tomorrow. So maybe what you spent all day trying to learn about is not as relevant the next 24 hours news cycle. But I think that's the biggest challenge and maybe not a threat, maybe mostly an opportunity, but it's really just never being okay with the status quo. No, I think that's good advice. And I agree. It's hard to keep up with. I like to think of it in terms of like constantly reading and 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 monitoring like you're doing, but keeping like a, a laundry list of things that, that I'm interested in or I think are interesting because otherwise sometimes I find myself, I don't know if you've done this, but I find myself going down rabbit holes and I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta really understand this, you know, this tech or this thing. And it's cool for the moment, but like, then I'm like, wait, wait a second. I just wasted an hour. What am I doing? Like, Get back to get back to the work. So <laughs> I can find myself doing it too. And then what I'll do too is mentally, you can play mental gymnastics, like all the things you're not doing, right? So I have to go back and check off all those small victories and all the things that we've done. So I try to look back so I don't get too far into the woe is me, I'm not doing enough because that's easy. It's an easy camp to invite yourself to. But it could be a full-time job trying to stay up. But I think if you can find one or two things every day that inspires you, that you can have a conversation with someone on your team or within your organization about there's a lot of things that won't work and you know right away whether they will or won't but things that really ignite like a passion or a feeling or a curiosity within you I mean those are probably the ones you should prioritize well Stephanie thank you so much for coming on the show I really enjoyed the conversation me too likewise I appreciate the invitation Alan Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. 
A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.